0: Let's talk about another portfolio, oil. The portfolio that exists in Venezuela is hurting. And here to tell us more about it is Liam Denning. He is our energy, mining, and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Liam, thank you very much for being here. All right. We know Venezuela's economy is a mess. We know the politics is a mess. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the likelihood that they will find a friendly nation, whether it be Russia or China or somebody, to loan them more money uh, and perhaps uh, help them stave off that day of reckoning?
2: Um, Well, define friendly. I mean, I think that
0: Non hostile. Because, I mean, the United States is even talking about more sanctions uh, on Venezuela.
2: Yeah, I think uh, so. The situation right now is uh, they've got declining oil production. um, The economy's in a tailspin. And they've got at least $5 billion or so of um, both sovereign debt and debt that resides at the state oil company coming due by the end of the year. So, one possible route for them is to get more money from China and Russia my sense is china may be reluctant to put more into this it, since it may be just throwing you know good money after bad yeah. um i think with russia it's it's more interesting because there there are reports that the russians are attempting to renegotiate some uh some clauses around collateral with existing um, I mean yeah, isn't Ros- Rosneft
0: right is the Russian, yeah, isn't Rosneft the, 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 the Russian oil and the they already controlled. have a 49% stake in no, no
2: they they lent money to um Petrobras collateral uh, I beg your pardon and it's collateralized with a roughly uh half stake in Citgo which is the the Venezuelan refiner now yeah. quite sensibly they may be the Russians may be trying to uh renegotiate that because it's it's unclear that if that ever came to pass, they could actually take possession of those assets.
1: So Liam, let's zoom out a little bit because Venezuela is a hotspot right now of difficulties on a number of levels. And it sort of uh, reintroduces this idea of political risk in the oil market that really has been sort of absent. And I'm wondering, let's say Venezuela does become the first big oil producer to withdraw from the market due to political risk or to pull mm-hmm. back, would that actually cause oil prices to rally? Would that be a positive factor or would that uh, possibly be a negative with people uh, wondering what will happen? Uh,
2: I think, you know, if if there is some sort of general, generalized collapse in Venezuela and it takes barrels off the market, that is generally going to be seen as bullish for prices. Uh, I, I think the thing to watch out for though is, you know, we have seen this happen before. I mean, you look at a country like Libya, where the country literally fell apart. It's being run by three different competing governments. Their production has actually been coming back uh, recently uh, to, to the extent that it's, you've now got OPEC and the countries that are trying to limit supply actually trying to nudge Libya. Uh, towards limiting its output, which is kind of crazy for a country that really needs the revenue. Um, I I think what I take away from Venezuela is if we, if we really step back and we look at what's happened in the last few years, um, what people have been waiting for is some kind of big pullback in US shale, i.e. the money runs out, companies go bankrupt, people get laid off, production goes down. Now it did go down, but then it rebounded quite quickly. And I think... Uh, If we're looking for barrels coming off the market, it's not going to be the more flexible um, companies that are operating in places like Texas, because, you know, even if those companies go bankrupt, someone else just takes over the assets and starts running it. I think it's much more likely that we see problems on the supply side in these economies which are very beholden to the oil price, which haven't restructured And where there's really very little flexibility on both the economic and the political side to deal with the pressure that they're under.
1: Liam, a really interesting point and one that I hadn't really thought about. In other words, stop looking for shale producers to cut production. It's really going to be some kind of crisis in one of these other producers like a Venezuela that's going to take uh, barrels off the market. Liam Denning, energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. His work is tremendous. Check it out. Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly or on Bloomberg NI Gadfly. Plastic surgery is a huge business. Pim, I didn't realize uh, that Americans spent more than $16 billion on cosmetic plastic surgeries, minimally invasive procedures last year. That's the most on record. And to give us a sense of how much uh, this business is growing, I want to bring in Dr. Stafford Brumund. He's a plastic surgeon at 740 Park Plastic Surgery on the Upper East Side of New York City. And uh, Dr. Brumund, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to get a sense from you in the growth of the industry in the past few years. What procedures have been the absolute most popular?
3: Well, there are a slew of procedures which people come in for, from non-invasive injectables and surgery. So in the injectables uh, realm, it's grown a lot. In our practice, it's grown almost 20% year over year and keeps growing.
1: Are you talking about fillers and things like Botox botox, fillers, fillers?
3: Botox and fillers. And then the other ones are non-invasive treatments like skin tightening and fat freezing, which is CoolSculpt uh, and all therapy. So they can have treatments which are not surgical, uh, either injectables or superficial treatments that make them look better. And those have grown immensely. They're more popular. It delays plastic surgery, uh, surgery itself, but doesn't eliminate the need for surgery.
0: Can you speak about some of the individual companies that have maybe pioneered or producing new types of therapies or services that you didn't have, let's say, five years ago?
3: Well, Botox now is a brand name, and everyone knows Botox and is really not afraid of it. And that's owned by Allergan. And Allergan, I think, was recently bought by activists. So it's a whole range of companies, but they have brought along Botox, which has many uses, as well as cosmetic uses. It's Botox Cosmetica or cosmetic. Uh, but they also have CoolSculpt, which was fat freezing, which was a technology where you did not have to have surgery. You just had a cooling device sort of strapped to you and that area lost the fat that it was treating. It froze it basically. And they just recently bought that as well. Uh, so, and there are other companies that still have other Botox or uh, botulism toxin products uh, like Valiant bought medicis a while back. So there are other companies that do that. There's another one, Traded Revance, which is a small company which has another uh, botulism toxin product.
1: Is this like all the effect of uh, Instagram and selfies where people, an increasing number of people are... uh, obsessed with the way that they look? Or is this uh, simply the normalizing of an ongoing trend where people just want to look their best and if they can find a procedure to help them do that, uh, they'll do that? I mean, how much excessive surgery do you
3: see? It's really a matter or a function of both. I think that uh, social media has propelled this to a new level. And I also think that people really are working harder and longer and want to be relevant and they have to look the part. So they come in seeing how they can still be relevant in the workforce. Uh, and so it's a matter, it really is, it bifurcates that way. It's the young person coming in knowing that they've seen selfies and they are on social media and Facebook and a more middle-aged or older group wanting to have plastic surgery to to stay in the workforce.
1: That's, that's a fascinating point. In other words, people who are older knowing that they might be replaced more quickly uh, if they don't look young.
3: Well, or they'll come in and they say, you know what, I work with all these young people. I can't look like someone's uncle or grandmother. I've got to look younger. So they want to do something that will transform them, but not change them so that they can be still relevant in the workforce.
0: You notice he keeps looking at me whenever he uh-huh. says those- uh, You're just
3: being self-conscious. <laughs> yeah, right. I didn't uh-huh. notice that uh-huh. at yeah, all. Yeah, I <laughs>
0: saw those eyes move. Right. Um, I, uh, Dr. Broman, I'm, I, I want to ask you about the practice uh, that- you know, you happen to be a plastic surgeon, but I mean, you're a medical doctor, so you've got to practice the software that you use the management systems that you use uh that is big business athena health for example one of the big software Correct. uh practice uh providers it, can you give us some insight into what has changed there and this whole idea of trying to digitize people's medical records so that it becomes a more efficient service because not all places well, are as efficient as some
3: the trend is to go to electronic medical records right In- Plastic surgery practices, you don't necessarily have to do that because it's a smaller practice. But when you're affiliated with a hospital, as we are at 740 Park Plastic Surgery, you can get the software uh, and the electronic records through the hospital system, which is Mount Sinai Hospital. Or you can get your own system, which is what we have, and there are smaller players in that field. So it's not only in plastic surgeries at Botox and fillers, but it's uh, medical records, it's information technology... Uh, it's devices. So there's a whole different slew of things to to look at in the medical space, but they're smaller players. Ours is Nextech, which is a privately held company, which is really on the forefront of uh, dermatology and plastic surgery and ophthalmology. And that's the system we use.
0: And they have, it's specialized, right? I mean, that's what's so interesting is that the, the market in a sense is fragmented because the software has been built for specific types of practice in specialties.
3: every specialty has its own needs and we have our needs where we need to show photographs and file photographs and uh, interact with the hospital and keep our own records sort of in shape so that our office can work more efficiently
1: You know, uh, before the segment, we were talking about how, in your view, sometimes your role is as much a physician and a surgeon as it is a psychiatrist or a psychologist and and a therapist, and that when people come to you, it's uh, really uh, part of your job to let them know if you think that perhaps they ought to go a different route if perhaps it's not a responsible surgery. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: plastic surgery is a two-way street. So we have to listen to our patients to see what brings them in and what concerns them and what we can do to help them. But then we have to project and help them figure out what works and what we can do legitimately and rightly. So we've got to sort of figure out where they're coming from, whether it's the right indications, whether it's the right requirements, whether they're uh, medically in the right place to have this sort of surgery. And then we have to discuss with them the options.
1: What's a a bad reason to want to get plastic surgery? Well, there
3: are many bad reasons. And so each person has their own take on it. But whether it's a uh, relationship issue, uh, whether it is trying to look like someone that they shouldn't be trying to look like, uh, there are a lot of reasons for it or peer pressure. So there are some reasons not to do surgery. And we, as a, as a body, as plastic surgeons, are offering our services to help them. We're here to help people. We want people happy. We're in the make people happy business. So if we can't do that and we think that their uh, objectives are not legitimate, then we'll tell them. We talk to them.
0: I want to thank you for talking with us. Dr. Stafford Brumund is a plastic surgeon with 740 Park Plastic Surgery, and uh, very interesting, uh, very interesting conversation about the nature of uh, plastic surgery. Well, we'll be looking forward to earnings from the Walt Disney Company, plus Alphabet, the parent company of Google. And here to help us understand what to look for is Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He can be followed on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. All right, P.T. Sweeney, uh, this uh, report today, I want to focus on the combination, perhaps, of uh, Alphabet and Walt Disney, because when I look at the dashboard, which I I compliment you on on Bloomberg Intelligence because it gives you every piece of data as if I didn't know that Dunkirk was the (laughs) big movie of the weekend. Uh, I find that it's Facebook and Alphabet. Those are the ones that are really competing for the ad dollars for companies such as the Walt Disney Company and ESPN. Is there an overlap? Is there, because it seems as though there's a bleed between one kind of company and another. Content is a very fuzzy thing now.
4: Yes, I think um, you know we've seen uh, something that we've been talking about in the TMT technology, media, and telecom space for the last 20 years is this convergence of technology and, and media and content. and uh, And we're really, really are seeing it really over the last five to six, seven years really accelerate. And so examples would be a traditional technology company such as Google is actually, through their ownership of YouTube, one of the biggest television platforms in the business on a global basis. Uh, and part of their, uh, you know, they're probably generating, you know, several billion dollars of advertising revenue on. Uh, YouTube. So there's a, a classic example, and then another would be, you know, uh, AT and T, the largest telecommunications company, spending 85 billion dollars to buy Time Warner to get those assets to put that content over their wireless network here. So we really are seeing the convergence here as. Consumers spend more and more of their time uh, online, if you will, and outside of the traditional uh, media uh, ecosystem.
1: Yeah, Paul, you were saying uh, before the segment that 70% of display ads, I just, I can't believe this, 70% of display ads are going to Google and Facebook and that proportion has been going up and that's been taking away from platforms such as Disney's and other uh, more traditional media companies. I'm trying to understand how effective some of these ads are. I mean, I think about, for example, the Google search ads and how often do people really click on them? How valuable is that to uh, retailers and others uh, that are doing the advertising?
4: What's well, interesting when you when you, if you went to the television upfront presentations in May for all the big broadcast networks, they would tell you that digital advertising is not nearly as effective as some people believe there is a lot of audience fraud you can't even really measure accurately the audience that is seeing your ad number one number two you don't know where your ad is actually being placed in many instances on the internet uh, and there are obviously those famous examples where an uh, advertiser would have its message you know next to some type of isis you know video or cer- certainly uh, content that you don't want to be associated with whereas on a broadcast and cable networks you know exactly where your ad will be it is a advertiser safe environment that being said, the dollars, the numbers tell a different story. TV ad spending this year will be up probably low single digits, uh, whereas digital advertising across the internet will probably be up 15 to 17%. So advertisers continue to allocate more and more of their budgets to digital advertising platforms, and as you mentioned... Um, it really is a duopoly for big brand advertisers. If they want to allocate their dollars on to the internet broadly defined, they really only have two two choices, and that is uh, Facebook uh, and uh, Google, So, um, and everybody else is kind of fighting for the scraps, which are big scraps, and they're growing, but uh, Google and Facebook are really the dominant players here, um, and I think a lot of advertisers are saying, yes, we have issues about uh, measurement. Yes, we have issues about uh, accountability and context, but at the end of the day, we know That our consumers, our audiences are spending more
0: more time online and therefore we need to be there as well. Talking about spending, spending more money for live sports. I'm wondering if you could talk to the issue of ESPN, some comparisons to a year ago so that we understand what's going to happen this afternoon when they tell us about the operations of ESPN and so on.
4: Yeah, so the challenge uh, for ESPN in the space of probably two years, two, maybe three years, ESPN has gone from the crown jewel of the Walt Disney investment story uh, to being really the, the big question mark. And that is because uh, un, uh, very similar to what we're seeing across the entire television ecosystem, even the mighty ESPN is losing subscribers to cord cutting and cord shaving as people try to pare back uh, their spending on the traditional pay TV packages. Even ESPN is filling it. So they have lost you know, several, Probably four to five million subscribers over the last uh, four or five years, um, and that is impacting their ability to uh, charge for advertising, and as well as it impacts their affiliate fees that they can charge uh, to their distributors. So they have revenue challenges at ESPN, and that's a problem because their costs their costs are primarily programming, and those programming uh, rights fees to the NFL and to Major League Baseball and to the NBA those are very big numbers and four hundred million. And that's right. And Isn't that f-
0: right for the for the NBA?
4: Uh, yeah, it was actually an additional $400 million right. above their last contract. So they, they have billions of dollars of rights fees that are long-term, multi-year contracts that are fixed at a time when their revenue is being pressured. That's the uh, the challenge for ESPN.
1: Well, and it's not just ESPN for Disney, right? Because we also uh, have gotten news that 38,000 Florida union workers are looking for higher wages and are uh, prepared to be pretty aggressive with that. How realistic is it that their wages could be increased enough to make a material dent in Disney's earnings and potentially hurt them.
4: Yeah, that's, it's going to be an interesting question to see how they uh, talk about it on the call coming up on their earnings. Um, that is, the parks and resorts business has actually been a great story for the Walt Disney Company over the last four or five years. This is a, a business that, um, you know, is a mid to high single digit revenue growth business, a low double digit profit growth business. So this is a, a business that they need to uh, really manage their costs well. Um, so the, And the, one of the largest costs, obviously, is their personnel costs. And to the extent that they have a material impact uh, to the costs, in Florida, which is their biggest market globally, uh, that will have an impact uh, marginally, I think, on the profitability of that business. But I think investors still view that business as a very good business, as a business that is worthy of more investment. And in fact, We see the Walt Disney Company investing, you know, every year more and more in their parks and resorts businesses around the world, from Shanghai to Orlando to California to additional cruise ships. Uh, So that's a business they like. That's a business actually that Comcast, through its acquisition of Universal, uh, got all the parks and resorts from Universal. That's a business Comcast likes. So. The theme park business globally is a very good business and of course D- Disney's a world leader.
0: Aren't they just about to celebrate something like their 10 millionth visitor to Probably. the theme park in China in uh, uh well
4: China, China the, the first year they had uh, I guess uh, I guess it was about 10, 10 million and that yeah. was kind of the, their goal and then now they're, now they're in year 2. So Shanghai's generally been very successful for the, for them and in fact they have announced additional expansion of of Shanghai uh to fuel what they believe will be uh, future growth there. So I think that was a I think most investors view that as a very good investment.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He is now off uh, to a trip to Disney World with his family uh, while he checks out Disney earnings.
0: We want to turn now to Ira Jersey, our interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, to give us a little bit of a preview of this week's FOMC meeting. Ira, what can we expect to learn?
5: Hey Pim. Hey, um, so the Federal Reserve is not going to hike this week. You know the market's pricing for a zero percent chance of a hike this week. So that would certainly be the biggest shock to the market. And I think you'd wind up seeing uh, two-year notes sell off quite significantly if uh, if they were to do that. Um, I, but there is the the possibility that they can announce runoff this week, which um, I think has caused some confusion and consternation around uh, different market segments about you know exactly what does that mean? What does it mean when the Federal Reserve starts to run off? Uh, um, its Treasury and mortgage portfolio.
1: So uh, so they're expected to start allowing some of their uh, Treasury and mortgage-backed securities holdings to pay down starting as soon as, what, October or September even. Um, and the biggest question, according to your latest research note, is around mortgage-backed securities, right? That's where people are sort of girding for the most potential volatility. Am I right in that?
5: Yeah, I, I think that that's that's where the biggest risk comes is really what uh, what what comes from that, and, and the reason is is because it, that can't be managed by the um, uh, by any bureaucracy. So when the Treasury portfolio runs off, even though uh, some months are going to run off significantly more Treasuries than than mortgage-backed securities, um, the Treasury Department can determine how that's going to come into the market. Is that going to come into the market with them issuing more 10-year notes or 30-year uh, 30-year bonds? The answer is probably not. They'll end up issuing Issuing a lot more T-bills and and two-year and three-year notes, a very short maturity, short duration, not a lot of market risk instruments. Whereas mortgages, that it will have to just be absorbed by the market based on how much um, uh, how much. People actually refinance their houses and how much mortgage activity there is. So, so, so that's something that that can't be controlled as well. So that's one of the reasons why uh, we think that uh, there could be much more volatility in mortgage-backed securities than say treasury uh, Treasury securities because of this.
1: So just to be clear, these mortgage-backed securities are agency-backed uh, securities. These are mortgages that are insured by Fannie and Freddie and Ginnie Mae and Ginnie May. right? That's and right. Ginnie Mae. Uh, I- I'm wondering how much do you expect that mortgage Rates could potentially increase if there is a lack of clarity around the runoff program, specifically with respect to mortgage-backed securities.
5: Well, so, so I think the Fed's done a good job in preparing the market for how runoff the, the, the pace of runoff. But but one of the interesting things is for mortgages, there's um, the Fed said that they're going to allow up to twenty billion dollars a month of their mortgage securities roll off. Now, what's interesting about that is that barely twenty billion dollars a month. is is running off today so there'll be many months when um, they run off everything out of their portfolio and all of that winds up going back in to mortgage pools. so you wind up with with more mortgage-backed security issuance it winds up affecting um, what rates are going to go out in the future now it, you know how much that, that's that's going to increase mortgage rates well back in 2011 when the Fed allowed their mortgage-backed security portfolio to run off you saw significant volatility you saw swings of 20 30 40 basis points within a few weeks uh, in, uh, um, in the market. So, you know, it's hard to judge exactly what the impact could be basis point per, per dollar of, of runoff. But I think you could wind up seeing significant volatility and, you know, a 25 basis point, 30 basis point increase in, um, in mortgage spreads compared to treasuries could, uh, could potentially happen. And, and that would obviously have an impact on the broader, broader economy.
0: Um, Ira, should we rename it the debt ceiling? Should it just be like the debt window because they always open it at the very last minute?
5: <laughs> you know, the, the debt ceiling. Yeah, you know, that's the one thing that could probably, uh, you know, stop the Federal Reserve from actually uh, uh, starting to run off of their portfolio. The, the, they always wait to the last minute to raise the debt ceiling. It's actually from a, for for a lot of strategists, it gives us something to write about, but it's really quite um, it's really quite annoying because it's a man made problem, right? It's it's not something that is uh, is. Societal. it's really congress just not uh being willing to change the rules so they so they only they can fund um they can fund the government based on the budget that they've already passed so so it it's right now our expectation is early october is the time when uh they actually run out of money to uh, to, uh both cash and uh, and debt limit um, soon after that they'll wind up running out of money in order to uh, to actually refinance debt so uh, there are some there are some Suggestions that some people in Congress want to do, like change the debt ceiling and say, hey, you're allowed to refinance stuff, you're just not allowed to issue new debt once you reach the limit. Something like that would certainly give the market some comfort. Um, you're starting to see, actually, the market move a little bit. Um, October T-bills are trading cheap to other T-bills because people are worried about you know, them missing a, a payment. Even if it's for a day, it's just really annoying um, to have to deal with that operational challenge.
1: Ira, thank you so much for joining us. Ira Jersey is rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and Ira, I'm sure we'll be speaking with you in the upcoming uh, days and weeks. I am very interested to see whether the Federal Reserve does mention anything about this runoff program. If they don't, I am sure there will be questions about how uh, serious they are about starting this runoff uh, later this year, certainly in the earlier part, September or October, should be interesting.